Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Well, welcome. We are at Chapter 18, Living in 2011, Personal Learning Environments, or PLEs. I've got a great group of folks with me today. So we're going to go in through and introduce and say hello to Autumn Keynes, Christian Frederick, Maha Bali, Rebecca Hogue, and Helen Ward. I was told, Maha told me before we got started that it's somebody's birthday and it's the author of this book. So on a count of three, one, two, three, happy, happy birthday, birthday Martin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's Zoom is so bad at that. <laughs> I know. I love it. It's great. I want it to be awkward as whatever. So it's Mar- January 6th. We're recording. It's early in the morning for me here in the US so we can get everyone in everyone's time zone around the world. And then we're really happy to wish you happy birthday on our podcast, even if it comes out later. You deserve birthday surprises all year round. All right. So personal learning environments were something that came out based on a few things we've talked about in previous chapters of Between the Chapter podcast. And I I brought this group of folks together because they know what it means to be in community, to learn and connect with each other. And I think maybe we should define it because when I invited this group, I I think there was a misconstruing between personal learning environments and personal learning networks, PLNs. So what the heck are between, what are these two things? I think, Helen, you have some idea. I really like to differentiate between personal learning environment are the spaces and places and and tools and technologies you use. It's the, like the content, the processes, the devices, the services, and then the PLN, the personal learning network, are the people, the groups and the, the collections, the conversations, the gatherings. Um, and, and I use um, Thornburg's um, metaphor of the fire the fireside uh, conversations fireside chats um, and that's a lot of times we have to think in, in terms of agency the, the individual's agency their their control over what they're where they're they're engaging um, their experiences and ultimately the purpose why they're in those environments why they're in those spaces particularly now with with the pandemic spaces that have shifted, you know, the the landscape dramatically. So thanks. I hope that helps. Yeah, that does. A a graphic in that I've, I've uh, kind of separated out the two in a graphic. I love that. And I will say, and Martin defines it as I'll quote him on his uh, page 123 tools, communities, and services that constitute the individual educational platforms that learners use to direct their own learning and pursue educational goals. That's how he defines PLE. So in this conversation, you're going to hear us talk about a combination of those two things. But Helen, I love that you just talked about agency and like opportunity where people could gather more than anything else is what I'm thinking about. So it's it's interesting because when I when I um, it's Rebecca Hogue here just from a voice perspective <laughs> when I hear network um, I think of it from a connectivist perspective and so for me I thought of network so as in personal learning network it included the tools as well as the people because I think of of the non agency like so knowledge exists in. Um, in, in computer networks, right? Like, so not just in people. And so I, I kind of think of the PLN as a bit more of a holistic term than PLE, which is really, I don't know, when I, when I read the chapter, I was thinking, it sounds like we're trying to replace 
the replace the um, learning management system, but we didn't quite go far enough and get into domain of one's own such that some of the examples were replacing it with just another private system. <laughs> or at least that's what it felt like to me when I was reading it. Yeah, I mean, I want to blame Martin for that. And I told him on his birthday, this is Maha, and I told you, Martin, on your birthday that I'm going to say bad things about you because I think you made a wrong choice there. <laughs> I understand that you wanted to talk about PLEs, but I think what Rebecca was saying is you should have focused on the people. Um, and I agree. Like, it's a, it's like, yes, we have so much, there's so much wrong with learning management system. Um, but if you want to go all the way, you focus on the people and then how far do you go with the people? I, I wouldn't necessarily say domain of one's own because that's not the only direction to go, but it's one of the directions, obviously. Um, and and it's, uh, I guess it's what it's about what the people are doing in the, in the space that makes you decide to go to a certain space rather than, honestly, nothing in particular about the space itself. So like, for example, and I don't even know if this is the right example of a personal learning environment because I didn't finish reading the chapter. Oh. But if we... <laughs> so if we say <laughs> they're really short chapters i just didn't have time to read this one um where for example we look at spaces like slack or discord which i think of as semi-synchronous third places because they're not the learning management system but they're not also your personal space that you use with your friends but you can use it at work or it's cool we were just talking yesterday about how we're hacking slack which is supposed to be for the workplace but using it for education and we're hacking discord and using it for education, but it's supposed to be for gaming. And it's about what people do with things and how people form their networks. And then the, the PLN is about the people and can go across different environments. So virtually connecting, for example, which we will talk about soon, uh, started out, for example, in different spaces and they move, but the network moves to different spaces. The environment where we collaborate, moving from Google Hangouts on air to Zoom of course, it changes things, but it doesn't change the essence of what we are, I think. Emphasis on people. So the co-opting of spaces, the hacking of spaces is interesting because I don't know in 2011 if we were doing that as much then. We were just like joining these spaces willy-nilly and not really thinking about some of the other implications that are going to be brought up. Well, something's missing. And we talked about this a little bit in our pre-chat. Yeah, there, it, there really isn't a definition or a clarity around what does he mean by learning environment? And I think, do, do you just envision LMS, learning management systems, as the learning environment? Because that really misses the mark. It's, it's, it's a bigger picture. Like Rebecca said, it's, it's a holistic image of what a learning environment looks like that includes... Well, in the, in the they say VLE, right? In the UK, they say virtual learning environment. So that's not that different from a personal learning environment. Uh, whereas when we talk about a personal learning network, it's about a network and not a person's uh, environment, right? Yeah, and I will uh, jump in. So VLEs, virtual learning environments, is a common term probably used in the UK and some other places, um, Australia and I New Zealand as well. The virtual learning environment is an educational technology. Uh, this is I'm going using Wikipedia definition. It's a web-based platform for digital aspects of courses of study, usually within educational institutions, which is a really broad way of saying um, institutional enterprise systems or spaces or softwares uh, that where they do teaching and learning, but that may not always be the case, right? So that's, there's some flexibility in that definition. So that's a good call out, Helen. I will say um, it's assumed maybe, and maybe should have been talked about. So we'll, we'll add some annotations to that document. Um, there is a document. Where did that come from? Um, the annotation document that's uh, going through this book and there's like little notes. Have, you all have seen it now. 
there's a hypothesis annotation of Martin's book. Where did that come from? And was that was after a talk that Martin must have done at one of the conferences, I'm assuming? The hypothesis annotation is uh, is is on the public hypothesis access, and it just overlays the um, the the book itself, so anyone yeah, can do public of, annotations in hypothesis. Is yeah, that what you're thinking of? Innovate. At OLC Innovate, there was a workshop, a hypothesis annotation uh, workshop for two hours where we focused on Martin's book. So okay. that's why there's a particular day in June or in May where a lot of people annotated the book. Cool. Thank you for that. Nate um, and, and Angel, Angel uh, actually dropped a link in and I will put a link that to our the hypothesis annotation of the book because there's some really cool um, notes and comments and this actually will just augment probably what I should have read a long time ago before I started this podcast. Um, so this is really helpful if anyone wants to dive in and it's a link to what they talked about at OLC Innovate, which thank you for catching me up on that. I appreciate that. What is uh, what are others thinking about uh, this as terms of PLEs? Just still defining. We don't have to go beyond this yet. Um, but what are you thinking? So um, this is Autumn Autumn Keynes, and I'll jump in just really quickly to say that uh, I only finished the chapter moments ago. <laughs> so I read it really really quickly um, and had the realization. I was like, oh man, they're not talking about personal learning networks. They're talking about personal learning environments. And my brain started to go 2011 2011 what was I doing in 2011 in 2011 I was actually uh pretty occupied with an LMS like an LMS change so I was at an institution that was changing from one LMS to another which is a major project um but I think that was occupying a lot of my time I'm a little more forgiving um about the chapter's focus on environments and tools a little bit more so than communities because from a historical perspective I think I think Meha's right I think that's not the right conversation to have but unfortunately that's the conversation we had in 2011 right that was the thing that people were talking about that was the thing that the conferences were pushing all of that kind of stuff um so unfortunately I think we kind of went down the wrong path with some of that kind of stuff but that's and I wouldn't say everybody was doing that but um, there were definitely some folks who were talking about communities who were talking about that kind of stuff but there was a lot there was a lot of push from vendors there were a lot of push for, there was just a really big voice about environments and to, web 2.0 was huge there was new tools popping up all of the time that could do different little things everybody was signing up for all of these accounts no regard for data no regard for like where anything was going. It was just like, oh, this is a free account. Let's sign up for it and tinker with it and see what it does. Um, Christian here. Hi. I was just going to to say that I don't. I wouldn't. Uh, I don't think we we blamed Martin, but I think the the conversation that. In, as far as I know, um, in, in 2011, 2012, I just joined this whole sphere or realm of, of um, connected learning, so to speak. So I'm kind of the puppy in this um, in this conversation. I it might just be for my naivete, but I don't really see a huge difference in the environment versus network conversation because um, in the chapter itself, Martin at the end makes the point that it is about I think social connections and 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 all that, and that was when I started 
in this field in 2011 2012 that was very much very very much my my understanding of it as well and at that time the um, I agree that many people signed up for all kinds of platforms and monolithic um, platforms that that's promised like the 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 kind of end of the rainbow scenario for learning um, I think the conversation was always one at least the people that I talked to always acknowledged that any environment without the people, without the connections, without the network in itself isn't really going to, to work anyways. The MOOCs kind of changed that, the, the ex-MOOCs, so to speak, but that wasn't really supposed to be a learning environment uh, from, from what I understood. And, um, that's just my, my little bit. And, and it might all, might almost be a cliche of sorts, but, um, in terms of defining learning environments, I would like to see someone define something that is not a learning environment. So where, what kind of environment is an environment where you do not learn anything that kind of is, that's why I wasn't even missing the definition of the learning environment. in, in this context, I was just going to jump in and say the question that got brought up and I should have asked is what were folks doing in 2011 and the two different ways that we go um, is really important. Ironically, I have to give a shout out because I wasn't sure what I was doing. Clint Lalonde that is uh, helping with this podcast actually was doing his uh, thesis, his master's thesis research on PLNs. And I have a blog post from this to document it. So this is what I do. Uh, and so I was like, thoughts on my PLN is what I wrote about in February, because I was in my grad program myself. And I think um, this is a really interesting pivot point where um, I don't know if those two are the same, but maybe they get talked about the same. And I love that you brought that up, Christian, because the end of the chapter does talk about this. So this chapter is housed, yeah, between a few things. Um, we, I was going to mention that this is before we talk about MOOCs. This is after we talk about Twitter um, and blogs and LMS. So this is a funny spot that the PLN, PLE could have been almost anywhere. And it falls after the connectivism chapter um, as well. So this is kind of where we're sitting um, in the world of the book itself. And um, yeah, I'd love to know where were people um, in 2011 thinking about this yeah. as well? I have to answer this one because 2011 was the Egyptian revolution that started in January and uh, ended with the ouster of a president that we'd had for 30 years in February. So that was 2011 for me. And so PLE doesn't sound like enough to handle that situation. It was, as you probably know, and maybe if people are too young, they may not know, um, This the entire Egyptian revolution was based on people forming PLNs <laughs> on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere. And I think back to what uh, Christiane was talking about in terms of learning environment, your learning environment is also your physical environment, right? I don't know if the chapter talks about that. Like, the, yeah, you're right. I think everywhere could be a learning environment. It's not, and everywhere, each person's learning environment is their, their space. But I think for, so for me, 2011 is a very special year. It had that. It's also uh, a traumatic year for me that ended in the birth of my daughter. But <laughs> so that's what I was doing in 2011. And it's also when the revolution happened in Egypt, they disconnected the internet for about two weeks because the internet was so powerful in, in, the, in getting people to gather for activism. So if you kind of think about Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and all that, this was way before that, where people were using social media for that before they knew it would be used for surveillance against them and then they would get arrested because they were gathering online. Um, but they were also finding ways to subvert 
the internet ban by using, I think, satellite to tweet. And it was, it was really, so that's what 2011 is for me. <laughs> I'll say that I feel like if the, um, the only thing for me that's kind of missing from the chapter, going back to that question a little bit, I know I'm kind of weaving some of the different questions that we've had together here. I hope that's okay. Um, I think there's a conversation of the informal learning that's missing a little bit that I'm thinking about with what Matt has saying around um, the the revolution in Egypt. And, and I think that that was maybe the hope for the personalized learning environment in 2011. There was this idea that people would um, that students would embrace their own tools and that they would um, adopt things themselves, that there maybe wasn't a need for a centralized learning system um, because there were all these Web 2.0 tools out there and that they could pick and choose different things uh, that they that they wanted and connect with one another and make their own um, networks um, and make their own learning. I think it's also very tightly tied to the um, kind of like the myth of the autonomous learner was part of that, which also fed into some of the MOOC conversation that came in 2011, right? But um, but yeah, I feel like a lot of that it's a there's a there's a parallel with, between the formal learning environment and the informal learning environment. And um, I think that informal learning is maybe not, uh, it's not really paid as much attention in the chapter as I'd like to see. I, th I think in 2011, I, I was actually sort of living what Autumn was talking about um, because I had started the formal PhD studies. I was studying mobile learning. And in the summer, I got drawn to, over Twitter, I got drawn to this thing called MobiMOOC. Um, which was a connectivist MOOC on mobile learning. And it meant that that's where I uh, did my first real academic collaboration. I wrote a collaborative paper um, and it was quite a, a um, transformative experience. And so that was sort of the, the heart of the connectivist MOOC. It was before the big Stanford X. So um, it, it, it sort of was that bridge, I think, um, I also wanted to highlight other things that were happening in 2011. Um, we just got the iPad 2. <laughs> so it had just, which was transformative after having the original iPad, right? But we were, tablets were still new technology back then. Um, but mobile was, was, was still, was pretty hot um, at that point in time. And I think now it's sort of just been, it, where mobile was a special thing then, it's now a um, incorporated. It just, yeah, we don't think of it as something separate anymore. Um, but yeah, I think that that for me in 2011, it was really the reaching out and creating my personal learning network. Um, and Twitter was a key part of it as well for me. It's just like, that's where I met people. That's where I actually met all of you. <laughs> I was just going to quick jump on the technology side, just to say that the tool that you brought up, the iPad 2, this was discussed in a previous version of Web 2.0 was 2006, but the iPhone made a difference to make mobile get started was 2007. And so I'll just say those timelines kind of make sense of where this comes from, even though we had blogs before this and video was before that, it really wasn't as... Um, 
I want to, the word I want to use is accessible, but it wasn't really available because it's not accessible to everyone. Um, so it was a bit more um, limited to who could participate and have that opportunity. Thanks for sharing that, Rebecca. I'll say that I think some of that came, uh, maybe I don't, I, I, I'm totally just talking out loud here. I'm curious what other people think. If I'm totally off base, call me on it. But I think that maybe some of that came because we were learning that way. The technologists, the designers, the innovative faculty members, we we had all these tools all of a sudden and we were like, wait, oh my God, I can connect with this educator in uh, Egypt right, or Canada or Germany and, and all, you know, all of these people who um, I have something in common with. Now, all of a sudden I can connect with them and distance isn't such a barrier anymore. We were learning that way. And so the myth became that our students would learn that way. And I think the reality ended up being that students at that point in time were not ready. And they, I think they might actually be a little more ready nowadays. But um, at that point in time, uh, the, the students that we were working with weren't necessarily um, jumping into those environments. Broadband wasn't as ubiquitous as we had, we would like and was we would hope it's still not. Um, but I think that's where that myth came from was the fact that we were learning that way as educators and as professionals. 2011 was for for me the the these I remember the summer of 2011 was the the year when I started out in this whole thing and we started at a small university in, in northern Germany we started out thinking about how we want to enhance and facilitate learning online basically and um, it was later on the the 2012 the year of the MOOC and we tried to weave in some more connectivist approaches into um, higher education online courses basically and then at least in Germany that was kind of a novel idea and we tried to work our way around that and connect connectivist learning approaches team-based project-based learning approaches to um, credentialing online and I Lots of what I read in this chapter was quite sounded familiar because we were thinking about how people can use Flickr and how can we um, actually make sure that they were the ones who actually, I don't know, created this image, this graphic. Um, how do you assess who, who worked on what in which environment? And all those connections and, and all those thinkings basically um, drove us in, in, in what we did back then. And it, it's interesting to think back to that because now it seems so far away um, and the questions that we ask around those environments seem so different than the, from connected to the ones that we're talking about right now. So before I joined this podcast, I just, uh, this recording, I just finished the podcast um, with Brian Lamb uh, and Terry Green and then Brenda Clark uh, on the teach-in against surveillance. And those are completely different questions than the ones that at least we in, in northern Germany were asking in 2011. And I think uh, looking back, we have to take that also into account somewhat when, when we assess what, what we did back then and what kind of technology we had and what seemed novel or new at that time. I love that you brought that up, Christian, because Tannis and I talk in, in the previous episode of Between the Chapters around connectivism because we were in a different place in time and we didn't have the um, awareness and knowledge that we have now. Um, so thank you for mentioning that because I think we are asking different questions about these environments and tools and technologies. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experiences with supporting a virtual community and working um, quote unquote with PLEs or PLNs. If you want to pivot to talk about that, that'd be great. 
Yeah, I can start and then everyone else uh, can jump in, of course. Um, so, I mean, you invited the five of us specifically because we are the co-directors of something called Virtually Connecting, which actually you were there at the inception of. <laughs> um, and going back to what Autumn was saying about informal learning and then how connectivism allowed people to connect with people from all over the world, what happened to me in 2013 and 2014 after connecting a lot with people on Twitter and getting close to them that way is beginning to realize that these people actually meet each other face-to-face -face at conferences a lot. <laughs> and I'm not there at those conferences. I'm virtual most of the time. Even the times where I thought I could get institutional funding to go, there are a lot of different reasons, logistical, financial, social, that I couldn't go. Um, and so it seems like there's a lot of equity, but there actually isn't. There's the illusion of equity on a certain level, and then beyond that, there's a lot of inequity happening in terms of how you can continue to develop those connections with people when you meet each other at conferences several times a year and things like that. And so Laura and I, Laura Paspini and I, were on the organizing committee of ET4 Online, which later became OLC Innovate. Um, and it was one of the conferences I really wanted to go to, and I became like the unconference virtual co-chair. <laughs> And Rebecca, and I was telling Rebecca, I'm so upset that I'm not going to this conference. I don't mind missing the presentations that I'm co-presenting. I can join virtually, but I'm missing chatting with people, those hallway conversations that people have and they build community. And Rebecca said, I will be your voice in the room. I will connect you through my phone or iPad or laptop to people. And that's how Virtually Connecting started. And it was all about connecting people to have conversations when they were together and there were people who were virtually not there who wanted to be part of that space. So we sort of created this learning environment out of nowhere, basically, that was that is hybrid. And, and, and I don't know, I'll let others talk a little bit more about that, but it just brought, brought people whose voices normally wouldn't be heard at conferences into the conversation, like straight into what was happening there. And so, um, all of this was happening in 2015 and the thing that was happening at the same time that I believe, uh, I believe Helen was part of that. I'm not sure about Christian, um, was Rizo 15. And so, yeah, we, Helen's nodding. <laughs> I was in Rizo 15, uh, along with Mehen and Rebecca, all of us were in Rizo 15. We were participating. This was a connectivist MOOC run by Dave Cormier, um, that happened on the open web. Dave would put out a prompt and a bunch of people from all over the world would respond with blog posts or videos or mashups, those kind of things. And um, yeah, all of a sudden I was hearing um, I was hearing about uh, Meha and, and I was hearing about Meha, you know, kind of lamenting that she couldn't go to this conference. And I, you know, seeing Rebecca respond. I'm not sure if this, I guess this was happening on Twitter. It's so funny. You know, these conversations are happening and I can remember the conversation in my head, but not necessarily remember the environment going back to what's more. We important. wrote a blog post. We wrote a blog post yes. about the conversation we had. So. I, I remember that Periscope came out like the week before um, the conference. And so we had been practicing um, and that actually had been the first time I had talked to Meha in her, like in person, in, um, synchronously, um, was in the lead up to ET for Online, and I was talking to her using. We were using Google Hangouts. Um, this was even before Hangouts on Air. Actually, um, we were using Google Hangouts. No, there was Hangouts on Air. There was Hangouts. That's how we recorded it and posted it to YouTube. Remember? But that's how we and we were using. We got there at that conference, right? So we hadn't. We yeah. weren't. At, 
yeah, because at first but, we were no, trying to do the download. Existed. No, no, no. Hangouts and yeah. existed before that. But yeah, the downloading was too slow in Egypt to upload again. It would take like six hours. So we decided to use, I think it was why we chose also Google Hangouts on air rather than Zoom at the time. The first session we had was on Zoom because I couldn't get Google Hangouts on air to work, but it took right. me forever to upload. So we decided uh, to use Google Hangouts on air because it could stream directly to YouTube. Now, you, now Zoom paid version will do that. But Google Hangouts on air was the only free thing that would allow you to live stream to YouTube. So that everyone else could participate or at least watch the conversations that we were having. It was it was interesting how we evolved into that technology, though. Like the technology wasn't the purpose. The purpose was the connection and the people. And, you know, the idea sparked from I was attending. I was living in California, but still attending meetings in Ottawa. And so one of my colleagues would bring me in on her phone, <laughs> um, sort of like the FaceTime on your phone. And I was that virtual person. And that's sort of where it came from um, of like, oh, I can just bring Meha into the conversation, into the conference. Um, but it just, it, it kind of blew up at that point because it, everybody wanted to see, see Meha much more than just the people that were at the conference, right? Like we realized that we actually had an audience um, and that actually was part of the ballooning. And I, I'd like to say that it was part of the, the building of that network. So you connected physically on site with people at the conference who then became part drawn into the network and people who were virtual. I was one of those that, that became drawn into this network. And then it, it, as, as conferences and as events evolved, it's, it seemed to snowball into this, this global collaboration of who's going to which conference and and who can we talk to that we wouldn't have talked to and this is how autumn and i ended up um you know face-to-face -face conversations with brian alexander and and in in a, a car with uh quintadura right <laughs> that was one of the things that was so transformative for me being the on-site person i didn't know very many people and it was through Meha's connections that I got to know people. And, you know, and I'm sitting there, you know, interviewing the keynote speakers <laughs> with Meha in that same room. And I'm like, how, how is this happening? <laughs> and it happened on the virtual end, too. My, one of my favorite stories is actually with Martin Weller, where, like, we were at Alt and I was the um, virtual buddy. And I'm running this session with Meha and Rebecca and Martin Weller. And Martin's talking about a blog post that he wrote. And I jump in and I'm like, so Martin, can you tell us where your blog is? And everybody kind of chuckles a little bit because everybody knows who Martin Weller is, except for me. It's the first time I'd ever met Martin <laughs> Weller. I didn't know that his blog was super famous and that he'd been writing about this stuff for years. So, it, I mean, it was good because that was part of the recording then because there's probably other people out there who don't know who Martin Weller is. I'm not the only one, but in that particular room at that particular time, I was probably one of the only people who didn't realize that I was, you know, talking to somebody who was, um, you know, who'd been doing this for a really long time. And it was huge for my professional development. It was huge for like helping me to better understand the bigger conversation about what was going on. The background picture on virtually connecting Twitter account is from that conference, that session that Autumn is talking about. There's Rebecca, myself, Martin Weller, and Martin Hoxie gathered 
around a little phone because it was the only place where there was internet in the whole conference. <laughs> so that's just because this is Martin's chapter and Autumn mentioned this. So I, I yeah, love ahead. that. Well, I want to actually just ask you all to describe what virtually connecting is. So I will say like Autumn, I'm asking for a point of curiosity. Some of our listeners probably have no idea what the heck you all are talking about. So um, there is a hybridity and effect and we know what it's, it's evolved into for some of us, but for someone who's just coming fresh and new, what is it, Christian? What is virtually connecting? That's an easy one. Um <laughs> No, it's it's actually not. And I think one of the things that people first think that it could be when, when they check out the site, at least that's a comment that we usually get, is is this a technology? How can I use this in order to to make it work at my institution, at my conference, and, and what is needed? I think the, the best way to describe it, at least from, from where I'm sitting, is to say that virtually connecting is a community of um, some educators, some learning technologists, however they would self-describe themselves, um, of people who aim to make conferences a bit more accessible and a bit more connected both on-site, but mainly to people um, who are not able to join or who did not join for whatever reason. And um, we do that um, with a community of people and and uh, quite, I, I learned this um I think in, in 2016 and ongoing with with quite a, a system that is iterated and and in and and kind of yeah iterated in nuances every every now and then um aiming to give voice and space and time to people who would usually not be heard at a conference like that and um we basically do that with different tools, different technologies. They have evolved over time, sometimes due to um, changes by providers, sometimes due to um, um, people suggesting that something else might work in a better way. But the the main gist is that at a conference, the, the experience for somebody on-site or online would be that you join an informal conversation, much like a conversation that a conference that you would have over coffee or tea in a break, and you talk about the main strands and the main themes maybe of the conference or what your experience, your personal experience at this conference has been like. And um, I think everybody who has joined one of these sessions, um, or most people, I hope at least, have somewhat similar stories to tell with how how they connected to this community of people. And uh, Autumn told hers, um, Maha has one, Rebecca has one, Helen have one, has one. Everybody who's deeply involved in this network kind of has personal connections to that and also personal connections to the people running this community and keeping it afloat. I think that's that's why I um, smiled when I got the invitation to to join here along with, with all the others because I think virtually connecting is an interesting example of a personal learning network um, and maybe especially in that regard, not an environment. I, I love that definition. So thank you, Christian, for clarifying. I will say um, you all were doing this well in advance. 2014, we were planning Maha, you and Jesse Fur, Jesse Stomel, um, and then get, bringing you virtually with Rebecca in 2015. Like you were well beyond. You're right for this pandemic, all y'all, uh, bringing people together in a hybrid way. And people were syncing up on video. So a lot of your work is um, on site and video in some format. I, I'm not sponsored by anything, so I'm not going to mention any of them that's not my thing on this podcast um i will say it's been cool that you've opened doorways and things that you've mentioned was purpose first global collaboration forging connections and 
curiosity. So even not knowing someone, who cares? Like no one's internet famous. So um, like bringing people together to talk about the things that really interest them and the meaningful uh, spaces and places, like the hallway conversations you have at a meeting or a conference in the side chat. That's what I loved about it. So y'all have some fun things that you do. Um, what does it mean though, to be having these like learning networks and, and creating spaces and places for people to connect this way? I, I think one of the things that it occurred to me that it was, it was challenging academic gatekeeping in ways that Twitter alone was not doing. Twitter alone was doing a little bit of that, but it wasn't invading, not invading, not in the worst possible way, but sort of subverting a little bit what was the, the clickishness and the closeness of conferences, even though we have had critiques that we are also a, a bit clickish, like we're open, like anyone can join, but saying anyone can join doesn't mean that people will join. And we've learned over time to do intentionally equitable hospitality to include people in and to, especially women and minorities and you know people of color, when you say anyone's welcome, you'll get a lot of white men saying, yeah, I'm welcome, I'm coming. And then women need to be reached out to personally. Oh, hey, you, Laura, would you like to join us? You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing we've learned. Um, and um, there's just one small thing I want to say, and then I, I'm going to let others talk a little bit more about intentionally equitable hospitality, I think, because that's the key thing that I think we've come out of it that we think has value beyond the specific context of virtually connecting and into generally equitable online learning and, and hybrid learning. But the, the one thing that is less visible to you because you're not deep into the community, but you're on the on the margins of it, is that beyond what you're seeing in the video, there's a lot of asynchronous and semi-synchronous communication happening, uh, like on Slack and on Google Docs and things like that, to plan things. And it takes so much planning because when you do something hybrid, this, there's a level of spontaneity, but to be able to include other people, you need to let them know when it's happening so they can join you, right? Um, and so, and trying to find the right person who's at the right conference, who wants to connect to the person who is virtual, who wants to be at that conference and someone has to announce the blog post and someone has to tweet it. So there's a lot of different roles and functions to make it work. And not all of the network is visible in public. It's interesting you talk about, I'm going to ask a question about intentional equitable hospitality, but I will say the in invisible labor that goes beyond what you all do to support a community and in these personal learning environments and networks is critical. So you have hit the nail on the head there, Maha, because I think we don't recognize um, how much intention intentionality and how much effort and time and resources go into some sort of support. I don't know, Helen, do you want to tell us a little bit about, I'd love to hear more about this intentional, equitable hospitality. This is the best term I've heard so far of these episodes. So please tell me about this. It, it's just just as everyone was talking, I, I go back to something I wrote after I started um, connecting with virtual virtually connecting, and I read a post by Seth Godin, and he talked about raising you know, so the the people you connect with raise your average. So if you're in a room with really smart people, your average raises because you're engaged in these conversations. And I remember writing and thinking, was that it's not about raising my average, but it's about um, finding the people and the conversations that really help collectively um, raise humanity from, from the depths of wherever you are. And I, th I think in terms of virtually connecting and, and that intentionality, it's about finding and, and building relationships and conversations with people that matter. 
And it's not the, um, you know, the, the Twitter stars or the, the, the social media influencers that, that matter, but it's the, the person, the individual who, who is new to the, to the space or new to the, 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 the spot. And for, for me in the work I do with teacher educators, it's really helping them find their own network, find their own spaces and build their, their, um, their, their connections with intention and finding the people who have the same passions that they have. So if you're, you're into dog walking, you find people who are dog walkers, uh, wherever they may be in whatever social media spaces. Uh, a student who said he's, he's on a, a, like a, a reading genre that is, is quite unique. He said, well, where do you connect with other people who read that same genre? Um, it, it's, you know, it's, raising your own um, awareness of, of other people and their interests and passions. I think that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, we put the link, we, we, uh, that's, um, um, so another thing that came out of virtually connecting that is uh, more visible than the invisible labor that we were talking about, but still not as visible as some of the like, actual conversations and video calls that we would do, the recordings of those calls, that kind of thing was the scholarship that we would engage in. So there's all this work and all this pre-planning that's happening to make these conversations happen. And then we get into these conversations, but we're all academics, right? So we're very self-reflective. We're thinking about what we're doing, the practices that we're engaging in, um, the practices that we are employing, the tools that we're using. Um, we're getting feedback from a wider community that Matt was talking about, saying you're saying you're you know you're trying to break down these clicks, but you're becoming a click in doing that. Um, and and we didn't like like I think some some folks who were maybe not as critical or who weren't as connected um, would maybe be able to pass some of that off. But one of the cool things that I loved about uh, being in virtually connecting and being part of virtually connecting was that, um, you know, we would, we'd be like, all right, well, let's think about that. Let's do some reading. Let's talk together and publish a paper about this. (laughs) So we did um, link to uh, the published paper that we had where we define and uh, kind of um, explore the idea of intentionally equitable hospitality. And uh, Laura, you can put that in the show notes. I think it is a huge piece of what's come out of virtually connecting, right? It's more than just these kind of uh, conversations that we have, which of course have a lot of, um, they're very important of their own merit, but then that self-reflection and uh, then publishing of what we learned from doing this for, you know, multiple years, um, I think is something that I hope anyway has benefit, has larger benefit that maybe will, uh, you know, even go on a little bit longer. Yeah. I was giving a workshop to an institution recently, they're doing high flex and my institution doesn't do high flex, but I think Virtually connecting really prepared me for high flex because what is missing in a lot of these high flex models is that you're expecting one professor to be teaching people into different places. And virtually connecting has a very unique model where you have an on-site buddy and a virtual buddy who is a, a, a virtually connecting volunteer. One is on-site taking care of the on-site people, and one is the virtual taking care of the virtual people. And then the virtual on the on-site make sure to connect with each other and make sure that everyone's voices get heard. Sometimes the on-site person, to be equitable, will shut up a white guy who's talking too much. 
And this is one of the things that, oh, that seems rude, but actually, well, that person's probably taking up a lot of space in his life anyway. And the people who are in this conversation, we're going to focus on those furthest from justice and give them space to speak because they almost never have time to speak. They never have space to speak and they're probably never going to be at that conference or they're rarely ever going to be like someone like me who's powerful in all kinds of ways, but I only ever go to like one conference a year because I can't afford to go more than that invited, you know? You beat me in that conference number, Maha. So um, I will define high flex really quickly and I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, simply some people on site in a classroom, brick and mortar, whatever you call it. And some people virtual instructor led that are in the interweb somewhere. So it's, it's a mod- version of that. So I'll put a link to that. Good, good call out to define. We've already given some suggestions of what's missing and what's in the chapter, but what are some questions that maybe we can ask, not just Martin, but the community at large, as we think of personal learning environments or networks or communities that we haven't really considered back in 2011 that we should ask now? Well, I'll just quickly say that um, the point that I made earlier about, um, you know, educators and academics and engaging in this way um, in informal ways to connect with one another. At, at that point in time, I'm not sure. It just wasn't, it hadn't been around long enough. It just kind of dropped into people's laps. But I wonder if um, some of the stuff that we're seeing on TikTok, for instance, if some of that is happening. Like I have a young person in my life and uh, she says all the time, I learned this thing on TikTok. I had a great conversation with her about the difference between sex and gender. Right. And I was like, where did you learn this? I learned it on TikTok. And she's not afraid to say she learned it. She learned it on TikTok. Um, And and yeah, I wonder if some of the um, informal social medias um, uh, that are happening now are lending themselves to learning in new ways that, um, you know, where the environment and the community are kind of coming together. Um, I don't think that went away, right? We just kind of changed the conversation around it, but I think it's still out there. And I wonder if it's different now than it was in 2011. I, I wanted to say that that one of the things that I'm always thinking about is how with all of these new spaces and more people aware of the new spaces, how do we keep them or make them intentionally equitable, right? What can we do um, as educators, um, to to model what it means to create equitable spaces. I, I was thinking about this all summer, and I realized that a lot of educators now, because of the pandemic, having to go online, they have no idea how to do build community online. They, you know, people tend to think, oh, I've got the tool, I'm on Zoom, so I'm uh, I'm synchronous with people. I'll put them in breakout rooms. They'll be in small groups, and everything will be fine. But it doesn't work like that. <laughs> And this intentionality, intentionally equitable hospitality thing is really hard to do. And it's really hard to explain without people experiencing it. So what uh, Mia, Autumn and I did over the summer is we built a set of resources of how would you build community online with specific activities that you can do. And we would select a particular activity and bring a few people around and we'd act it out as if we were students. But we'd do a topic that's relevant for faculty to show it happening, you know, and then when you finish talking about it, to talk about adaptations. What would you do if you had a student who couldn't turn their camera on? What would you do if you didn't have breakout rooms because your institution didn't have a particular tool that had breakout rooms, for example? Um, And so I think the best thing is to experience it and then learn from it and reflect on it together. But in the next best thing is to watch a video of someone doing it and discussing and reflecting on it and then try it yourself. 
Um, so that's that's the set of resources I put in the chat. Um, there, there are community building resources. They come out of Equity Unbound, which is one of the communities that a lot of people here are also part of, um, and uh, an organization called 1HE, which is uh, which works on higher education globally. And I'd like to just echo from that the fact that there are communities like Equity Unbound and Virtually Connecting that that work openly that model and show how we go through these processes and how we struggle and make mistakes and and pick ourselves up and and I, I think that is that all of these become like OER o, o, open educational resor- resources for people to learn from TikTok a resource that people learn from yeah, blogs Twitter, social media um, spaces are places where we can learn from each other. But if we don't talk about it, if we don't talk about some of those issues and and problems in whatever spaces and places, um, nobody's going to learn that you, you, you made this huge gaffe. Like, how do you pick yourself up from that? And because we all do them. Um, even going back to virtually connecting and and saying people um, didn't want to turn their mics on or didn't want to talk in a virtually connecting session and making that okay, but then giving them opportunities to talk when they're ready. So it's it's you know that negotiation and and doing it openly. I would just add that um, I would like to to urge people to do something that they're book really enables them to do which is to to look at the history of the things and the conversations that we're talking about i know i didn't in 2011 2012 as much as i would have needed to um i noticed that plenty of people nowadays don't look back as much as they should um and i think it's it's a constant struggle not to let people get away with ignoring the past and the history of these technologies that we're working with. But I think um, being more relentless in that is something that I would like to to see, um, which is why I like how we challenge the, the idea of the personal learning environment versus the network and, and all that kind of thing. And we need to do that more and more often, even, uh, even though that I know that this group um, doesn't need that reminder from me at all. Well, this is helpful for us to share with the community. And so all that you've given suggestions, um, all that you said about learning as you go and failing and fixing it and changing is also important. And um, thinking about being intentional and purposeful with our personal learning networks or environments is really critical. So I want to thank you so much for the time, the resources, and all that you've shared um, with the virtually connecting community, but also on this podcast episode. I really hope that people can dive in. I've got so many show notes coming your way, y'all. So get excited. So thank you so much, everyone. I appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. This was lovely. And it was lovely to see you all together. Thank you so much, Laura. Appreciate it. Bye, everyone. Great seeing y'all. See you all. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.